This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and so much more. And Jason, it was week 16. We both had to kind of do a reality check on that. We've been working from home for about four months, like so many other Americans. We began this working from home just before the first quarter of the year ended. Now we just wrapped up the second quarter. The first half of the year is over. And this week, Bloomberg Business Week magazine, a little bit of a respite, perhaps from some of the big headlines out there and stresses that we've all been dealing with. It's the heist issue. And we'll get more later on from our editor, Joel Weber, and features editor, Max Chafkin. It is, as you say, a little bit of a respite, Carol. Uh, And the heist issue, it's an annual tradition. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to hearing more about that. But meanwhile, the headlines continue to come fast and furious. We are a country and a world dealing with multiple crises and crises that continue to befuddle us in many ways, not the least of which is the virus. We got spiking cases across the United States, and it is a scary time for many people. We're going to hear uh, later on what that means from a medical perspective, and obviously it informs just about every conversation we had. But first, it's a topic we continue to discuss, diversity and inclusion, and one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg this week, the unwritten code on race, black and white on Wall Street. You're right, Jason. It was one of the most read stories of the week on the Bloomberg. We got more from Bloomberg News finance reporter Michelle Davis. Over the past few weeks, uh, Wall Street, much like the rest of the country and the rest of corporate America, has been facing a reckoning over race. And that means there's been lots of conversations happening. And so, you know, I wanted to talk to black workers across the industry to hear about you know, what it's like to be black in a predominantly white industry, what sorts of conversations are are happening at their firms right now, and, you know, why they think diversity initiative uh, has failed. And in talking to folks, what I found or what I heard, you know, was that while a lot of people are really heartened by the fact that, you know, there are these open conversations about race happening right now, it is clear that Wall Street has failed as people of color, and there's a lot of skepticism that anything is going to change anytime soon because a big part of this is, you know, there are these unwritten rules and there is a systemic racism that is just ingrained in the culture that, uh, you know, some say is, is going to take a long time to change more than just a conversation. Michelle, what surprised you the most as, as you were reporting this story? Because the way you wrote it is fantastic because you just come right out with these with these unwritten rules and, and note that some people will say no that's not true maybe that's not true but the reality is is as i read it at least knowing wall street fairly well every one of them rang true to some extent or another but what surprised you the most so i would say two things one is i hadn't realized that even though wall street has you know had diversity initiatives in place for decades the industry has actually gotten whiter over the past few years. At J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Citigroup, the percentage of black workers overall has been falling, not rising. So that was surprising to me. And the other part was just the fact that every single person I talked to had experienced some sort of racism, not you know just when they left the building because social status doesn't protect you from racism, but it was inside the building and it, you know, Maybe not all of it was as overt as like a coworker calling them an inappropriate name, but it was just these little things that happened every single day that um, I found 
shocking and horrible, frankly. I got to tell you, just the list reading through, and I've read it a couple times. I mean, you know, as you say, never forget, despite all those promises about diversity, only about 1% of senior management on Wall Street is black. You know, you go down this list, adopt a white voice, don't laugh too loudly, act like all of this is normal, don't talk about race. I've had conversations with a lot of folks. I know, Jason, you have too. And, you know, it's amazing how black Americans on Wall Street, and I feel like in corporate America, they have really felt like they are not allowed to speak freely. And that's troublesome. Yeah. And I think something that one person I talked to said that I think really kind of sums up what you just said there, and which I found interesting is that a lot of this does have to do with culture. So, you know, if you have to change or hide part of yourself to fit into a culture, and based on the conversations I had, you know, people are getting penalized. If they don't, then that means there's clearly something wrong with the system and and the culture itself. And I I think, you know, the big question is, how do you actually pierce that? One thing I would have loved to do in here that I didn't is um, actually be able to break down, like, what the black representation is like on actual trading floors and like within investment banking, because those numbers they don't exist anywhere. Um, I know anecdotally that, you know, at some of the banks, there are no black workers on certain desks, but it's just there. It's, it's, I think until there are actual numbers, it's going to be, it might be hard for some of the banks to actually like admit that there is a problem. And that's Bloomberg News finance reporter Michelle Davis, as we said, one of the most read stories of the week, which in some ways I have to say, is good news in the sense that I do feel like Wall Street is paying attention to this story more and more. Race, race relations, and inequality, Carol, oftentimes on Wall Street went unspoken. And I think that is underneath everything that Michelle was writing about in this story. These unwritten rules, they Mm -hmm. are disturbing to read, but also paint a portrait of maybe, maybe, just maybe, uh, a Wall Street that's ready to change. I'm just going to say, check out our story on the Bloomberg at Bloomberg.com because there are so many revealing statistics and startling statistics in that story. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, as states continue reopening, the question remains, are they doing it too soon? We'll hear from one of our go-to voices on the virus, Dr. Ian Lusbader. He's the Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. It's a week where Anthony Fauci came out and talked about virus cases could rise to 100,000 a day if behaviors don't change. This story front and center. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. And Carol, as much as we would love to move on from the virus, <laughs> the virus is not moving on from us. We continue to see spiking cases across the country. Well, and I feel like it was brought front and center by Anthony Fauci, right? He's the U.S. government's top infectious disease specialist, Jason. He warned lawmakers that virus cases could rise to 100,000 a day if behaviors do not change. I'm very concerned and I'm not satisfied with what's going on because we're going in the wrong direction. One of the voices that we talk to weekly is Dr. Ian Lusbader. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, and he told us where we are when it comes to fighting the virus. Most doctors uh, that I speak to certainly are very concerned, and hospitals are concerned as they should be. Um, to some degree, 
you know, I think by by not really mandating, you know, masks and social isolation, uh, really by giving that as an option, which, you know, with multiple states and in a free country, that's certainly one approach. We're really in a way. Uh, following the the Swedish model, which is uh, letting nature take its course. And uh, when that happens, there's certainly a significant risk. As Dr. Fauci says, you know, cases at this point are about 40 or 50,000 a day. We know they're really much higher because we're really only picking up about one in 10. We're only diagnosing one in 10. There are probably 10 times more people who have uh, COVID than, than are actually being picked up by tests. So we're talking hundreds of thousands a day of new cases. And of course, that translates into potentially um, a higher surge on hospitals and healthcare facilities. And this is what we're seeing across the Sun Belt. Yeah, and it's it, not even it's not even just the surge um, with hospitals, which is a concern, but really uh, ultimately a higher death rate. And then what I like to call post-COVID syndrome, even people who get through it often have a lot of uh, other symptoms and ongoing health care issues. So it's uh, it's quite worrisome. Ian, let's talk about that. In anticipation of our conversation, I was talking to others about um, exactly what you're getting to. You know, you were the first one. Jason and I can kind of almost remember the day where you talked about the blood clots, you know, throughout the body. And this was just not something you see often. Talk to us about the implications of that and and, and the problems that seem to be maybe staying with some patients even after they recover. Exactly. So this, uh, and Dr. Fauci has said this, he said this is a virus with protein manifestations, meaning multiple ways of manifesting. We typically think of uh, a virus as perhaps as a pneumonia or fever, chills and aches. But this virus is unique. We, we really can't think of, uh, of something uh, similar where multiple organs are affected, strokes uh, in the brain and kidney disease, liver disease, very high liver function test, GI disease, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and not only that, uh, besides um, uh, killing people uh, with uh, blood clots, and and, uh, some of the latest data show that the virus seems to increase uh, platelet aggregation or the stickiness of platelets, and platelets normally, you know, we need to, to cause some clotting when you get an injury or a cut, but when there's massive increase in platelet stickiness, you get clots everywhere, and that probably explains a lot of the, you know, severe consequences that we see as a result of these infections. Well, and presumably that ultimately has an impact on a hospital and doctor's abilities to treat a whole host of things, including new cases, but also this long tail, as it were, uh, Ian, of COVID. Exactly right. So we have the, you know, the acute uh, injury or the, the acute illness, and we're still a bit perplexed why there is uh, a number of patients who have mild to, to no symptoms, and this is that large, young group of people who are asymptomatic. They form a reservoir. They often feel fine and feel invulnerable. They're not wearing masks. They're potentially transferring this to other people who are older, which is why you know, universal masking is certainly a, a reasonable request for, for all. Um, and then uh, in susceptible patients, you get this really uh, cascade of effects that make people more short of breath, have clots everywhere. And then even if people survive uh, after hospitalization, many have a long-term, yeah. not only psychological effects, but physical effects. Ian, 
a Pfizer vaccine showed some promise. And what's interesting is Wall Street investors, they tend to react pretty enthusiastically uh, rather quickly when it comes to virus news. Um, Put it in context. When do you realistically still expect a vaccine? So, I, you know, I think this is encouraging news. Pfizer is one of a number of companies, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, you know, who are really moving forward. A lot of these studies are going to go into phase three with wider number of patients. The Pfizer study is, is fairly small, uh, you know, 45 patients or so. Um, but it certainly is encouraging. What we don't know is in a larger number of patients, uh, how many will develop antibodies that are neutralizing, how long those antibodies will last, and will the virus mutate. So I think it is encouraging that we're making progress. It is a unique uh, way of making uh uh, a vaccine with messenger RNA, which gets into your own cells and uh, uh, forms these uh, proteins that are typical of the coronavirus, COVID-19, typically the spike protein, and then your body forms antibodies to that. So you're not subject to the risk of uh, a live virus. And we think that this is uh, hopefully a better way. It is a relatively new technology. But again, there are a lot of hurdles uh, before not only uh, is it proven effective, but it can be ramped up, manufactured, and distributed. And probably there'll be several vaccines using similar technology, uh, hopefully with similar efficacy. So I think at some point, uh, and I'm thinking early 2021, uh, but I think it can be a very bumpy road uh, until we get there where where it's widespread. That's Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. And Jason, I feel like so many of our weekly conversations with him have really often revealed things that then are in the headlines. So I really feel like he has kept us ahead of the news when it comes uh, to COVID-19. Well, and one of the reasons, and I think we're feeling this acutely, is because New York was so much on the front lines in New York City specifically, and he Mm -hmm. was on the front lines. So he saw this virus up close and personal. He saw the effect that it had on doctors and nurses and other essential workers. And he's also seen the cautious reopening, a reopening that got a little more cautious this week, even as... New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, all the states around us and the Mm -hmm. states that we live in, Carol, started to say, "Mm, we may need to slow this down because of what's going on across the country. Yeah, two steps forward, one step back, it feels like. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we can't forget, it's a presidential election year. Why some are saying President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, well, that they've switched roles when it comes to the election. That's coming up next. It's like a freaky Friday. This is Bloomberg. (laughs) This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we've had on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Business Week. This week, Carol, and we can't get too far away from politics. No, and it's easy to sometimes forget it's a presidential election year, Jason. It's just about four months away. Josh Green, one of our favorite voices uh, from Business Week to have on air, he's the national correspondent. He wrote the book about the 2016 elections. This week, though, writing about the role swap going on between President Trump, the incumbent, and his challenger, former Vice President and Senator Joe Biden. Basically, Biden, Jason, is acting more like the incumbent. Josh joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Overall, what stood out was just the oddity of this race. But the specific thing that seems so odd, as we talked about, is that these two guys have sort of just swapped roles. 
So in speaking to, uh, you know, past presidential strategists, administration officials, Trump officials, really has to do with the unique nature of these two men. I mean, on the one hand, Donald Trump, you know, loves being a Kennedy, loves holding stadium rallies and tweeting and criticizing people, but he's never really kind of cottoned to running the government. And when you look at all that's going wrong in the country from the spread of COVID to the recession and the collapse of the stock market and all these other things, it's kind of understandable why he might not want to focus on that and run the way a traditional president would, which is having lots of rose garden ceremonies and reminding people that he's the president and he's in charge. On the other hand, you know, we've never had a candidate quite like Joe Biden, somebody who's been on the national stage for so long and is so familiar that he doesn't really need to introduce himself to voters. Uh, the way that like a new candidate like Barack Obama did in 2008. Biden doesn't really have to convince people, hey, you know, I'm qualified to be president because he's been vice president for eight years. He's been a senator for 140 years or something like that. And so he, he has very well-known name recognition. People have a very clear idea of who Joe Biden is, moderate Uncle Joe, whatever, whatever. And so he can kind of camp out in his basement. And as long as he's leading in the polls by 10, 12, 14 points, he can essentially run an incumbent's campaign and just say, hey, vote for me. I'm Joe time to put me in charge. Well, and a big difference is, as you write in your story, is about, you know, incumbents, you know, going after um, undecided voters in the middle, right? And that's what's missing from Trump. Yeah, it really is. I mean, look, there's a reason that incumbent presidents of both parties going back 100 years tend to do the same thing. You roll out a big second term agenda, you bring in government, business bigwigs into the Oval Office, you kind of flaunt the power that you have in the bully pulpit and sort of establish the conditions by which voters think, you know, that guy looks like he's in charge of things. Let's give him four more years. That's worked for every president, you know, except for George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter in my in my lifetime. And, you know, because incumbency has a real measurable advantage. So it's sort of interesting that Trump has chosen to forego those potential advantages. I mean, he can, you know, call a, a, a nationally televised address. You know, he can reach out. You know, he can, he can start a jobs program. There, there are things that you do in a big recession that Trump is just not doing. And by failing to do those, I think that helps explain why it is that swing voters, voters in the middle, at least right now, according to the polls we have, are primarily siding with Joe Biden. So, Josh, I mentioned the um, the artwork, and for those who haven't seen it, and because this is obviously uh, a, a radio program, the art department superimposed uh, a Biden face on Trump and a Trump face on Biden to get this point across. Um, and I'm wondering if that's still haunting you, Josh? It is haunting my dreams and my nightmares. <laughs> um, I tweeted... <laughs> It's I tweeted creepy. out the image on my Twitter feed a little a little while ago. If anybody wants to check it out, and I'm pretty sure it's a business week um, online and in <laughs> yeah. print. But uh, yeah, it's it, it is weird. The face the face swapping is is a very vivid visual uh, representation of the broader idea I was trying to get at here, and one that you will not be able to shake from your mind for better or for worse. And that's Bloomberg Business Week National Correspondent Josh Green, along with Joel Weber, the editor 
of the magazine and the art, as these guys alluded to for this story, you got to go check it out if you're listening to us on the radio. Just, you know, go to Josh Green's Twitter feed because it says a lot about where we are. And it also, A, as you said at the top, Carol, a reminder we're still in the midst of a presidential election and also a reminder that when Donald Trump is involved – it's never business as usual, and it certainly is the case as we get closer and closer to November. That's what I was thinking when we were talking to Josh and Joel. It's an unusual year on so many different levels, including politics. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up as the presidential election heats up. We're going to train our people who are professionals um, in sports, the sports business to be professionals in the voting business. We'll hear more from Atlanta Hawks CEO Steve Coonan, who's taking steps to ensure Atlanta voters can get to the polls. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily radio show this week. And Carol, it's Mm -hmm. a business of sports invasion. (laughs) But it's a great invasion. And Jason, we know that this year is turning out to be a very different year on many levels. That includes the upcoming presidential election. You and Mike Lynch had an interview with Atlanta Hawks CEO Steve Coonan. We have um, offered our arena, State Farm Arena, which is about 700,000 square feet, to the Fulton County Commission to host voting for both the August runoff and the general election. And we will be the home of early voting for Fulton County, which is a county that has almost a million registered voters. Um, In early voting in Georgia, you're allowed to vote in any super precinct. So we will take our full-time staff and turn them into full-time poll workers. One of the difficulties Georgia has had is that they aren't volunteer training, but maybe an hour before the polls open. And we're going to train our people who are professionals, the sports business, to be professionals in the voting business. They'll train for a week. We will open our doors. We will socially distant. We will allow for handicap. We will allow um, for any kind of needs And the biggest need is for an efficient, timely way to vote. And hopefully that's what we're going to deliver to the city of Atlanta and Fulton County. Steve, take me through the uh, the process here because uh, I'm a Boston guy. And if this idea surfaced here in Boston, it would take a decade to get it through all the appropriate people that need to put the stamp on it. Who would you have to deal with? Who gave the green light? And were there roadblocks or any impediments? Actually, it moved pretty quickly. I kind of had the idea when I was watching the protests the first couple of nights because they were literally at the street intersection of where our arena sits, and that was the epicenter of the protest in downtown Atlanta. And protests have to lead to change, and change is very difficult. And in my mind, the one thing that I thought we could help influence immediately was voting. And so because of the unique structure of the NBA season this year, that we're not starting our season in mid-October, as traditionally done, but in sometime in December, our building was open and available. So I had a conversation with our coach, who is Coach Lloyd Pierce, who has been leading the Coaches Association on um, social justice and has been very, very active to bounce it off of him. He liked the idea. Our owner, Tony Ressler, liked the idea. 
So I placed a call to Fulton County Chairman Rob Pitts, who I had known through my career. And he called me back the next day and said, can we tour the arena? And they walked in the arena, and within an hour we had a deal, and we did a press conference 48 hours later. You had to have been surprised, Steve, that it moved that fast. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You know, it's interesting. I I really applaud the Fulton County folks. They were very humble. They said they're going to move from worst to first. They understood the dilemma they were in. In fact, their head of voter registration said, we didn't know how we would solve this problem. So when somebody thinks you're a good guy going in, and (laughs) candidly, we offered them everything. We're going to pay our employees. We're going to make the parking free. We've got MARTA, which is rapid transit in Atlanta, to reopen its station, which is 25 feet from our door. We gave them a turnkey solution because this was something we felt passionately about. And, yes, I was stunned that it moved so quickly. And I just think, you know, good timing met a good opportunity with a good solution. For us, it gives us a real opportunity to do something to help affect change. And for Fulton County, it gives them a building that has everything you need that you're not going to find in a classroom or a library. You know, great connectivity and Wi-Fi, a highly educated, trained young staff, spacing for social distancing. We gave them our practice court for a month with a secure, with 24-hour security. Is where they're going to count all the mail-in and absentee ballots. So we're literally turning our building from State Farm Arena to, and like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, State Farm Election Central. How did I do on that plug? That's good. That's pretty good. Pretty good. They're going to be happy. You know, sometimes going and voting to, a, as you said, a school or a library or a fire station, you could stand in line for a long, long time. If, there, if it's inclement weather, uh, it discourages people. But, you know, I, I've been to that facility. I'm a Boston guy, but I spent a week down there at the Super Bowl. It's a great facility, public transportation. This might become such a pleasurable experience that you might be asked to do it every time there's a major election, at least every four years. So are you ready for that? Well, I would love that if it became a national NBA holiday and every arena in the league did it. Yeah. I mean, have you heard from other – I mean, I know that this is brand new, but I have to think this is an idea that could catch on across the league, Steve. I talked to six teams. We have a network of NBA presidents. We work together. Even though we compete on the court, we're business partners off, and there's only 30 of these jobs in the world, so we talk quite a bit. So I had multiple cities um, call me, and multiple cities are doing voter registration, and they've already got their programs into place, so they're going to look. You know, if you own your building, your building is going to be dark from most likely concerts and um, the start of hockey and basketball are being delayed. It's a great opportunity, and I think one of the keys is through our owner, Tony Ressler, and his generosity – We've been paying all our employees, yeah. and so by, by treating people well, now we need something back from our staff, and they couldn't be more excited to participate. So they're going from full-time sports employees, Hawks employees, to full-time poll workers, which really hasn't happened. So, Steve, you know, we were talking about the NBA, and, and you put it very well that there are only 30 uh, of these jobs, and you guys talk all the time. It does strike me that the NBA has been 
more progressive than most leagues in terms of activism, in terms of reacting, and maybe being proactive around a lot of social issues. A, do you agree? And B, why is that? Uh, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think if you look at, I think it has to start on two levels. I think the first is ownership structure. You know, Adam Silver, who is progressive and innovative and a phenomenal leader, works for owners. And if you look at the ownership in our league, it's not generational ownership like you see in the NFL. I mean, you have wonderful families who have owned a football team since the start. Here you've got this next generation of private equity and investors and Steve Ballmer and people who are, you know, well-versed in the needs of community. When you buy a sports team, Mark Cuban wrote this, and in fact, he wrote a letter to Ballmer that was great. It said, you don't own the team, you're just the steward of the team. The team is owned by your community. Tony calls our team a community asset. And I think sports are the great unifier. One of the reasons that I left the TV industry and went and ran my team in my town was because I thought we could do more to unite and excite the city of Atlanta than any policy or politician. And I think sports has the ability, and we're kind of seeing it with our announcement, to um, solve problems and create um, opportunity in a very unique way. But I think our young ownership structure with people who are invested in their communities and also understanding our players are our product and our players want to have a voice and our players are our partners. We share our revenue virtually 50-50. I think it's 50.1, but for rounding sake, let's go with 50-50. And they want to do more than basketball. We want to be more than a basketball team. So I think the aspirations line up perfectly. In Orlando, Steve, there's going to be on the floor uh, painted on all the courts that are playing Black Lives Matter. Um, will that carry over when to, if we come to a next season in the NBA? And could we see visible signage of standing up for social justice in the 30 arenas around the NBA? I can't comment <laughs> on whether it carries over. But I think the idea of strong pro-social statements and positionings and reinforcement of ideals absolutely makes sense. You know, like I said, I haven't even discussed that with anybody. I, I saw that and thought it was fantastic, and I think it's a huge statement. That, and I'm very, very, very proud to be part of the NBA when they make statements like that. That's Atlanta Hawks CEO Steve Coonan, Jason, with you. And of course, Mike Lynch, you guys interviewed him for the business of sports. I think this is fascinating. And I'm curious to see if other cities and states start to do the same thing. Well, and it's a callback to last week's invasion that I had into this show, which was LeBron James and everything that he's doing around this more than a vote effort. I mean, what we're talking about here, Carol, is an attempt to right some structural wrongs that have to do with access to voting in this country. It's just that simple. These are the sorts of efforts I really believe that could fundamentally alter, dare I say, democracy in the United States. Well, I love what this team is doing, right? Because they're also challenging other NBA franchises to essentially become civically involved ahead of the November election. So let's see if everybody follows suit. Kind of keeping my fingers crossed on that. 
Me too. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour as we take you into our special double issue. It's the heist edition, perfect for stay-at-home reads or maybe social distancing beach reads, perhaps? Yeah, just don't get any ideas about stealing stuff. Plus, we'll hear from Mack Weldon CEO Brian Berger, his take on running retail during this new world order. That and so much more is coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead of you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including our conversation with an old friend of the show, Mack Weldon CEO Brian Berger, mm. on the front lines, Carol, of retail and the collision of e-commerce and brick and mortar, if that's even a thing anymore, plus time to eat. Yes, exactly. Impossible Foods Chief Financial Officer David Lee stopped by. He talked about expanding sales of their plant-based sausage. They're rolling it out nationwide. And he had some interesting statistics about what's been happening at their company as a result of the lockdown. But first, let's take you inside the heist edition. It's a double issue of the magazine, an annual tradition now. Here's the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber, and Max Chafkin. He oversaw the whole issue. Well, you know, this is the third annual heist issue. It's a uh, huge testament to one Max Chafkin, um, who has become just the captain of this thing. And, uh, you know, Max and I just like all year long are basically like talking about this issue and like putting together our, our works in progress list our whip list and, you know, tr- trying to figure out the ones that are going to make it or not make it. And, you know, the, this issue is a culmination really of that process and a huge testament to him. And, you know, all these um, reads, you know, we've always set, joked that um, we want to kind of steal your summer with this issue. And. And boy, um, could we have come out at a better moment in time for that. Um, yeah. So hopefully uh, everyone can you know, pack this around all summer long and uh, take their time enjoying it because the stories are just tremendously good. Max, what is your favorite? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I love them all, but uh, the, the the story that uh, Carol mentioned at the top, the, the Super Bowl ring yep. heist um, is, is epic and, and wonderful. It's by uh, Zeke Fox. And I don't want to ruin the whole thing, um, but it's about a very, very, very committed New England Patriots fan uh, who decided uh, in uh, basically about 13 years ago to get revenge uh, on, on the Giants. And, and, and the way he decided to do that was by stealing their Super Bowl. And it wasn't even the biggest heist that he went after. And for that, you'll have to read the story. Um, uh, you know, you guys talked with Claire uh, Suddeth. Yep. Yesterday, um, about yeah. her story uh, about the Gardner Museum, yeah. where this five hundred million dollar mystery uh, remains this this sort of th- thing in the art world that no one has ever been able to crack. Um, I, w- my favorite little detail about that is uh, we call we've called it the the case of the empty frames because the museum has to keep the frames empty on the walls um, because otherwise the the entire museum would actually turn over to Harvard. They have to keep things exactly as they were when the heiress handed them down and created the museum. Um, so it's like a, a heist within a heist if they, you know, if they, they act out of line. Um, and, and the stories just kind of keep going. There's an amazing one that we just published today by uh, Natalie Obiko Pearson um, in, in, about Huawei and Canada, where there was once a company called Nortel, 
a mysterious hack um, sync that company Huawei it co coincides with basically the moment in time that Huawei really started to emerge as a dominant force and actually uh, Huawei ended up hiring a whole team of Nortel engineers who basically ended up being the ones that built 5G at Huawei so it's a way for us to be, be both timely and, and timeless, which is sort of one of my favorite attributes that we try to do. They're there. just so much fun. So, Max, I'm just curious about the conversations you guys have in the newsroom when you are putting this together. you got to think about it. It comes out every year, at least for the last four years. So, you know, what goes on in the newsroom as you get ready, you know, and you plan for this? Well, so, I mean, these are mostly fun. Not every story in this issue is what I would call, you know, 100% ball laugh. Um, but but for the most part, we're talking about stories that are fun and entertaining to uh, to report and, and, and entertaining to write and entertaining to read. And so, you know, the reporters in the newsroom uh, like this issue. It's a it's a kind of uh, journalist favorite. And um, and so, yeah, throughout the year, you know, we're Joel, like Joel said, you know, we're fielding pitches um, uh, for these stories. The, the Super Bowl one that I mentioned was. Uh, you know, months in the making. I think we first started talking about it in October or November of last year. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so it's, it's a kind of a combination of just sort of over the year, uh, you know, fielding a bunch of pitches, but then also trying to be a little bit imaginative and think about, you know, what are some, what are business stories that you wouldn't necessarily think of as a conventional heist story, but that could be thought of that way. And, and, and that's one that, that's like the Nortel story that, that Joel uh, yeah. mentioned, you know, also, by the way, happy Canada day, everybody. I mean, the story is about a, um, a Canadian <laughs> national champion that um, was, you know, through its own hand, uh, through the market and through a hack was destroyed. And so it's not, a, it's not a straight up heist, but it, it is a story where there, where some theft plays a role and there's also kind of a, a sort of business theft that is like one company taking another company's market share. So we try to take a, you know, a, 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 a sort of broader view of heist and then we, ha and then, but of course they have to have some like just classic, you know, take the painting type, type, yeah. uh, type yeah. stories. And, and, and we actually have two of those issues. So, so it's, it's a mix. And that's Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and features editor Max Chafkin, the architect of the heist issue. I wonder if he got any big ideas, Carol. <laughs> I kind of love this issue, right? You never know what you're going to get in the heist issue, but it's all about stories of mystery and things gone missing. I love it. Stolen Super Bowl rings, fleeced workers. I don't love that. Uh, but nonetheless, man, where they go when they do this issue, it's always a wonderful, wonderful read. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Mac Weldon is airing its ads on television for the very first time, our conversation with the company's founder and CEO. That's coming up next. They're a digital retailer, but man, they are definitely doing things a little bit differently in this environment. Well, they're at the nexus of everything mm -hmm. when it comes to apparel and shopping, and we know it's a new world. This is Bloomberg. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes. Their age. The way they speak. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio.
We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we have throughout the week on our daily radio show. And Jason, we do like to remind everybody that as we were having these conversations, I mean, the world continued to evolve. The stories continued across the Bloomberg Terminal. I mean, news just was fast and furious. Well, and one of the things that we know is happening is that people actually are continuing to shop. Now, they're doing mm-hmm. it a lot more online, and that's probably good news for Mac Weldon's CEO, Brian Berger. He's a friend of the show. We check in with him pretty regularly about what they're doing. Full disclosure, I'm a customer. I buy Mac <laughs> Weldon stuff. Uh, stuff. It's really good. But he caught up with us to talk about some of the new things he's doing to respond to the crisis. Irrespective of what's going on now, we're always trying to be really thoughtful uh, about where our ads show up. A lot of our ads are served by algorithms. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, you could put constraints on, you know, on sites that you want to be excluded. But, um, you know, so it's something that we think about on a regular basis and that we have thought about a lot with respect to what's going on right now with Facebook. Um, I wouldn't say that we're at a point where we feel that we're going to be kind of pulling our ads, but we absolutely respect, um, you know, the moves that some of the larger brands are making in, in this regard. And, you know, these are tough, you know, these are tough calls. I mean, I think for everybody, um, you know, we're living in, um, you know, in, in, in really unprecedented times. And I think that um, brands taking a stand for things that they believe in is is really awesome. And, you know, we've tried to do that as appropriate. And, and we'll continue to look at this situation and see uh, what makes the most sense for us. Well, and speaking of taking stands and, and the conversations that, that you're having, Brian, I mean, I do um, wonder about the conversations you're having around equality and inequality and, and diversity right now. I mean, you know, you're a relatively young company, and in some ways it's what we've heard from a lot of CEOs we've talked to is that when you're a younger company, in some ways it's easier to have this conversation, you know, younger in terms of the age of the company, but also candidly in terms of the age of your workforce and, and whatnot and, and how you are uh, constructed. Tell us a little bit, if you can, about what those conversations are like and, and some of the things you're hearing from your employees that you're putting into play. It's been super, it's been super, um, uh, you know, also with respect to the, the COVID lockdown and then the murder of George Floyd, um, you know, it's been challenging uh, on so many levels, but but the murder of George Floyd was, was particularly challenging because there was a bit of a galvanizing effect when we all went into quarantine and, and really the message from myself and from, from, from most CEOs was that, you know, this is, we're all in this together. Um, and in this instance, the message was we're not all in this together. Um, there are uh, parts of our employee base that have been uh, and, and, and are way more affected by this than other parts. But that doesn't mean that we can't all together come together um, and do a much better job at how we think about diversity and inclusion in our company. And so we took some very specific actions um, and we came together and, you know, the work is just beginning. Uh, but uh, starting with, you know, a, a, a diverse uh, and inclusive workspace, um, we all felt that there was way more that we could be doing proactively to make this part of our operating culture and our DNA than we are, you know, have historically been doing. So we committed ourselves to, to, to certain things uh, as a company, and we look forward to, um, you know, rolling those out and really sort of moving the ball forward on this. I have to tell you, Brian, Jason and I are messaging ourselves back and forth because what you said about we found out that we're not all in this together. I mean, that is such an important statement because we're not. 
Yeah, and again, that doesn't mean that we can't. I mean, it's an opportunity to learn. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that we did that was really powerful, you know, brands are really compelled to, like, react when things happen. And a lot do, and it's, it's challenging because you yeah. don't want to be seen as, you know, kind of being opportunistic or pandering to the moment for your own kind of, you know, brand advantage. So, so we really tried to be very uh, introspective and, and, and really had an employee-first mindset. If we treat our employees right and we create the right work culture and an environment for our employees, then that will ultimately manifest itself externally to our customers and, and to our brand. And I have to say, Jason, uh, I've talked to, you know, Richard Edelman of Edelman, you know, Corporate Communications, and he's, you know, advising a lot of companies and reminding us whether it was through the virus and also, you know, with what happened in Minneapolis, that it's just not the time for companies. I think we all had a, a little bit of a, a time where we had to kind of find our way, but ultimately, bottom line, it's not a time for companies to go dark or for leaders to go dark, you know, that people want to hear from companies, especially those that they they like. Um, So it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time, too, for you guys, because you're doing TV ads. What's up with that? Yeah, so this is something that we had as a priority in 2019. But because the rest of our advertising, um, you know, all, all the rest of our advertising programs were, quite honestly, um, facing a lot of headwinds in 2019 for a whole variety of reasons. We didn't really have the space in our marketing budget to really execute on it. Mm. And like so many things uh, that have happened during this kind of 100-plus day quarantine, it's just an amazing example of our team, our entire company, our entire team um, doing more with less. No fancy shoots, no big production budgets, no kind of new you know, original content. We effectively looked um, into the assets that we had and, and really found probably the best thing you can use in an ad, which is a whole uh, bunch of you know, video customer testimonials that we had done earlier in, uh, in the year that we were able to repurpose uh, with some video editing, with some you know, voiceover, with some graphic insertions around product, and really to stitch together creative that was very, um, you know, uh, I think tone-wise really um, appropriate for where we are right now and enabled us to get to market really fast with a, with a test. And then the other, you know, the other thing where basically um, a lot of advertisers pulling out of traditional kind of linear television, spot television, uh, over-the-top video, create a little bit more space for brands like ours to come in and test. Right. Because right? we're just testing this right now. That's Mac Weldon, founder and CEO Brian Berger. Jason, we love talking with him. Digital retailer, right? Uh, but they did open their first brick-and-mortar store about a year ago this spring at the shops at Hudson Yard. So really understands the retail environment and really how to operate in this new world order. Well, and what I find fascinating is the world has in many ways, no one would have predicted it this way, has sort of come to him not only in terms of the way people shop, we're all shopping online, but what we're buying, what yeah. we're wearing. I am a testament to this. You see me every day <laughs> T-shirts via all the time. our video conference uh, system. You know, it's T-shirts and jeans all the time. And we had a story this week via the New York Times about Zoom shirts, basically yep. people throwing on a dress shirt if they've got to be seen on video. I do that sometimes, but <laughs> I do wonder uh, what's going to stick on the other side of this. That's right. I recently saw you in a jacket. I'm like, Jason, what's going on over there? Feels Our, weird. I know, I know. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we've got an investor and entrepreneur looks at the world through so many different lenses. We're talking about FS Investments Vice Chair and CEO of Campus Apartments. David Edelman is back with us. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily radio show this week, Bloomberg Business Week, 2 to 6 p.m. Wall Street time, just as a reminder. Mm -hmm. And we love talking with folks, Carol, who have multiple lenses, multiple views into the economy and business. Takes almost a couple minutes to just introduce him, but I love talking with him because, as you said, Jason, he can talk about real estate, sports, education, travel. David Edelman, he's CEO of Campus Apartments. He's also the vice chair of FS Investment. That's an alternative investment fund manager. They've got about $24 billion of assets under management. And we caught up with him, you know, to just check in about where we are in terms of the investment and business environment. It's interesting. You know, you had the best quarter since 1987 for the Dow. So I guess, uh, you know, I don't think things were that as good a month or six weeks ago when we were on the phone. So uh, a lot has happened in the markets, I guess, since then. And, uh, you know. Interesting time. And here we are. Yeah, this sort of divergent world that, that we're living in, David, for sure. And we've been talking a lot about that. So let's start there. What do you make of it? I mean, you see investments across the spectrum from private to public. You see the public markets, but you're also looking at startups. You're advising entrepreneurs. Like, synthesize it for us. Like, what do you make of the world? What's your view? It's interesting. I, 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 look, if I was betting against the market, I would have been really wrong. And, you know, I, I didn't take into account how much capital uh, the Fed would put into the economy to kind of, you know, prop it up. And it's, it's done an unbelievable job because I think, you know, without that, we wouldn't have an all-time high where we are right now in a great quarter in the markets for sure. Uh, and they've done a great job of taking, you know, a horrible pandemic and creating optimism, at least from a standpoint of, the, you know, the capital markets. Well, David, are you one of those who thinks there is a divergence between what's happening in the financial markets versus what is happening in the real economy? What are you seeing, you know, as you look at your different businesses and your different investments? So it's interesting. You know, I also wouldn't have bet that, you know, May and June had strong retail sales as things started opening. There was this pent up demand. And, you know, I didn't see that coming because, you know, you still have over, you know, 30, 40 million unemployed people, which is just, you know, really sad. And, you know, we have to figure out a way to open up the economy and get those folks back to work. And, you know, for those who've lost jobs in industries that, you know, might not might have gone away, we need to retrain them. And so that's the divergence that's confusing to me is where, where you see the markets really doing well. You see retail spending going well, e-commerce is moving. Um, and then you, you still have to think about these, you know, kind of the unemployment claims. David, talk to us, uh, shifting gears a little bit about back to school. You're very involved with campus housing, campus apartments. Uh, Carol mentioned you're the CEO there. Uh, housing obviously is a key part of getting college kids back on campus. What's it going to look like? What are you seeing literally from the ground level? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, one thing got really proven during the pandemic, and um, I, I think I mentioned this last time, that over 65%, uh, up to 85%, depending on where we were in the country, of our residents actually quarantined in our apartments off right. campus and kind of stayed in that environment. And what became very clear, and you know, the universities will acknowledge this, that the online learning experience you know, people didn't feel they got the value out of that. And so people are craving that, you know, kind of in-person experience uh, looking you know, for the schools to open. And the schools really realize from a business perspective, you know, I'm a parent who's got a high school senior that's going to start as a freshman in the fall. If, if you're a college that doesn't open, your child, you might lose that customer and they might transfer to a school that is going to open. 
And so really important from the business perspective that they kind of provide a service to their customers. There was a great article actually today in the Wall Street Journal uh, from the president of Cornell talking about how they're opening yeah. up, why they're opening up, uh, you know, the COVID testing they're going to do. And, you know, so I, I commend the schools because they've really come out with thoughtful plans. And, you know, in the last three weeks, you know, most of the other schools in the country, you know, we're probably north of 90 percent of the schools have probably reported at this point, you know, with some sort of hybrid model, meaning your big, giant, you know, 300-person lectures, well, those they're going to do online, uh, but they're still going to utilize in-person, in-class teachings for the smaller classes, you know, just a little more spread out. You are the owner of a number, owner, part owner of a number of sports teams. Where are we in the world of sports right now? How optimistic are you that we're going to get back to something resembling close to normal here? I I think I've watched every replay of every you know basketball game for the last twenty years, so <laughs> yeah. I'm ready for fresh content, as is everybody else, right? Yeah. And um, you know, I think you know the leagues are all trying to figure this out as best they can. Um, you know, the NBA is near and dear to me, and you know, my friends who play are you know ready. They're all working out very hard, and I think that uh, you know I have to give credit to just you know the way they're trying to be safe, and which is what you have to do first. But uh, you know, I think people are excited to have you know some fresh needed content. And that's FS Investments Vice Chairman David Edelman. They have some private equity investments. They've got about $24 billion in assets under management, Carol. And I love his view of the world in part because he's in Philadelphia, so that makes it a little bit different. He owns some sports teams. He's invested in the higher education realm through real estate. So all these inputs that he gets gives him a pretty holistic view of the world. I love what he had to say, too. Uh, He, too, like so many of us, were surprised at the market run-up. And it was just kind of fun to get his take on where we are, certainly in the equity markets and so much more. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the plant-based protein market getting a boost during the virus lockdown. We check in with Impossible Foods Chief Financial Officer David Lee. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week. And Carol, you know, the meat alternative market, I'm fascinated by it. You are too. It is booming during the pandemic. Yeah, and one of the big players uh, in this market that continues to tap into that growing demand is Impossible Foods, Jason. And what's interesting, this was a big week for them. They rolled out nationally its first all-new product since it released its Impossible Burger back in 2016. It's sausages, protein-based sausages. We got the latest on the new product and the market from Impossible Foods CFO, David Lee. Well, our world has continuously been about increased demand, even as more and more folks to this global pandemic are sheltering in place. We've seen something like a 30x increase in Impossible Foods business and grocery stores, and we're on track, actually, to exceed 50x growth this year. We are trying to adjust to meet the meat eater where they're increasingly shopping, and that means in grocery stores, it means creating our direct-to-consumer business at buy.impossiblefoods.com as well as supporting the rollout at Starbucks and at Burger King, our new platform, The Impossible Sausage. So, David, talk to us about sort of those shifts that you had to make to, to meet that demand. Was it uh, – did it involve sort of shifting spending? Did it involve shifting production? Like, take us inside what, what you had to do as this uh, sort of changed and, and then kept changing. 
Right, because surges in demand are great, but sometimes you got to all of a sudden... you got to meet them. Yeah, exactly. You bet. I mean, we have been well prepared uh, for the surge that we're recently seeing because a big part of our research and development is not just in a delicious Impossible sausage product or an Impossible burger. It's the actual way we make our product. So being able to scale with co-manufacturers like OSI has allowed us to meet all the demand we're seeing and continue to grow. Uh, that said, it is unprecedented the amount of demand we're seeing, and, and so far we are on track to supply it. Were you, David, surprised by that? I mean, I know a lot of people have been home and they're ordering lots of food, but I am curious how you think specifically the virus impacted kind of your world, maybe opened it up or made more people aware. Did you specifically target folks with advertising, or how do you think it came about? What are you hearing? Well, our brand has been built predominantly uh, based on earned media and word of mouth. And Mm. I think as more and more meat eaters are sheltering in place, they're thinking about the choices that they make every day to feed their families. They're thinking about what does the meat they crave do to the environment and their health. You know, nine out of 10 of our customers are self-avowed meat eaters. And when you have the benefit of really uh, deeply thinking about better choices for yourself, it's a natural fit with the rollout of the products because we're just as craveable. We just don't have as many compromises for your health and for the environment. That's interesting. So uh, tell us more about what you've learned about the the customer, David, because you make such a good point that it is a very reflective time. I mean, and that extends to everything from exercise to nutrition to, you know, maybe even some bigger um, crises that we're facing as a country around social justice and consumption and and inequality and, and all those different things. But it is a time to get to know your customer more. Tell us more about that. Well, you know, meals have always brought families together, and the Impossible Burger uh, could possibly be the one product that's been launched to bring everyone together, whether you're a meat eater, you're vegan, you're halal, or you're kosher. You know, what we find is that as home chefs experiment with cooking, you know, they've come to realize that meat is incredibly bespoke to how they want to serve it. They can make it rare or well done. They can put it in pasta or a burger. An Impossible Burger and Impossible Sausage are unique in that they're entirely made from plants, but you can make them into whatever you are, you're, you're hoping to make for dinner for your family, mm-hmm. unlike almost any other plant-based product prior. Um, so I think that experience of watching our products transform uh, in their own hands has been a unique one, different than going to a Burger King or to a Starbucks where you can enjoy the Impossible Breakfast Sandwich or the Impossible Sandwich. And that's been driving a lot of the growth we're seeing out of grocery. Well, that's what I was curious, David. Like, break it down for us. I mean, we're Bloomberg. We're nerdy. We love, you know, kind of to break down exactly where you're seeing the growth. So is it, you know, you talk about the direct-to-consumer market so people can go online. There's the supermarkets. There's those partnerships, right? Starbucks, you know, announcing their own breakfast sandwich that's made with your impossible sausage. So rolling it out to 15,000 stores nationwide. Where is the most growth among those revenue streams? Well, candidly, we're seeing growth across all of them. I mean, 20,000 locations for Impossible Sausage made from plants since the start of the year. Uh, An increase of 30x the number of grocery stores, right? Up to nearly 5,000 locations today with plans to to grow that even faster. And then the recovery that we are helping support uh, amongst food service, where you're seeing innovative tactics by our restaurant partners. They are 
They're shipping raw Impossible Burger direct to the home consumer. They're creating meal kits. Uh, and, and frankly, all of that is happening in a way uh, that transcends any single channel. And because we are building a new business, we can adjust to where the meat eater has shifted, and they're shifting increasingly to cooking at home, um, though we are seeing resurgence again back in the food service world. So, David, uh, talk to us about sausage because, you know, that is an area. Because Jason loves sausage, David. I That's love what sausage. About. <laughs> uh, I <laughs> have too. Tr- I've tried the product in restaurants. I'm excited to try it uh, in, in my home. But, I mean, it obviously is a, a different sort of product. But as you say, uh, a lot of possibilities there. Uh, tell us about sort of the development of it and how you market it maybe differently uh, than you do just the, the straight up burger and the, the more uh, straight ahead meat or meat product. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the hallmarks for Impossible Sausage in some ways are really similar to the way in which we've been successful with the Impossible Burger. It it appeals to meat eaters like yeah. me and you. Um, it transforms the way the Impossible Burger does. And it's comfort food. You know, we, we announced that with uh, Yelp's help, we're at 30 of America's top-ranked diners, these mom and pops that are just known, known for delicious comfort food. Even as we roll out, at 15,000 locations across Starbucks and Burger Kings. And that's the thing about a great sausage product. It, it creates a new opportunity for breakfast for Impossible Foods. You know, burgers are great, and the Impossible Burger is, is one of the best, but it's often not the first thing you wake up and choose to eat. Right. Whereas a great breakfast sandwich is something I think we all If the bring. first thing and, you're waking you know, up and eating is a burger, David, you've had... <laughs> you're in college. You, you're, you're in college or you've had a really rough night, I'm guessing. That's that's right. But you know, speaking of which, the Impossible Sausage has some of the best health credentials around in that it has a 60% more iron than an average brand of pork sausage, right? It has 45% less calories, 60% less fat. So, you know, patty for patty, the Impossible Sausage is a pretty good choice first thing in the morning or any time. Well, you know what's uh, interesting? Which is why we're very excited. About I have to jump in because you know, and Jason and I always go there when we're looking at all these, you know, meat alternatives, protein-based products, you know, because you know that everybody talks about the high levels of sodium. I've got to say, I went to your website. You guys go into a lot of detail about the sodium levels in your products. It's very informative, um, and I highly recommend that everybody read it. Having said that, it sounds like though, David, that you folks at Impossible are still looking at ways to reduce maybe the things that might make people a little concerned about the health factors of eating your products. Is that fair to say that you're still trying to, you know, maybe even improve it, whether it's the sodium levels or what have you? Absolutely. You know, the benefit of the way we approach our work is we're driven by science, which means there's a new, better version around the corner for every product we have. You know, we already have no cholesterol in our products and as much protein, as much iron, but we're increasingly improving the health profile, whether that's less and less fat or less and less salt. You know, the thing about salt, which you probably read, is that most meat eaters don't take raw meat right. and eat it without seasoning it. And so we like to think that by the time you enjoy our product versus the product from an animal, it's not altogether that different in the amount of sodium you're consuming. But that said, our, the promise of our technology is to get better and better. And, and I think you'll see more and more versions and improvements to come. That's Impossible Foods Chief Financial Officer David Lee. And I think it's really interesting, Jason. They're seeing growth for their products on all of their revenue streams. They talked about, I think, something like 33 times an increase in their business, um, which is pretty remarkable. And I also thought you and I both found it uh, interesting that nine out of 10 of their customers are meat eaters. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah, this is a market that I think tells us a lot about where consumers are going. And it was interesting also to talk to him about their company and being a mission-driven company and being a mission-driven company at a time when so many companies are facing big existential questions about what they are and where they want to go when it comes to diversity and when it comes to, you know, the type of consumers they want to appeal to. Yeah, exactly. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our podcast feed for all of the full interviews that were highlighted in our weekend show over the last couple of hours. And also check out our extra podcast. We talked with Charlotte St. Martin of the Broadway League, Jason, in a week where they came out and said theaters will remain closed for at least the rest of the year. Broadway is going to be dark for a while. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.